For those of you that don't know, some of you do, uh, my wife and I recently bought a house. Uh, we bought a house downtown Miamisburg on 5th Street, on the corner of 5th and Jefferson, um, so that's been exciting. But basically, we, bought, we, we closed, what was it, Brian, like three weeks ago, probably? About three weeks ago. And we've just, but we haven't moved in yet. We've been spending a lot of time uh, doing what I would say most, what most people would call renovating, um, except that's not really the word that I think that we should use. We've really been doing a lot more like restoration work. So there was some things that were done to the house that kind of tried to hide a lot of the things that made an old house unique. I mean, our house was built in 1902, so it's nearly 120 years old. So there's just some things about the house that really make it unique. For example, there's a fireplace in the living room, beautiful brick fireplace. The fireplace had been framed around. It had been enclosed. There was kind of some cheap carpet put in over some really nice hardwood floors. So we've just been removing that stuff. And don't get me wrong, we've been adding other things. We have been doing renovating, but most of it has been like this, this work of restoring, of taking what used to be, taking what the original vision for this house was and kind of trying to bring that back, if that makes sense. Um, and for any, raise your hand if you've ever done home renovation slash restoration. I know there's some people in here who have. Yeah, so we got quite a few people. So you know kind of the pains that come along with that. Most of the time, it's a lot harder and takes a lot more time to restore something than it does to just build from the ground up. Because when you're building from the ground up, it's our, you, you make it how you want it. It's already good. You're the one that determines if things are level, if things are unlevel, whatever. But with what we've been doing, we've been having to fix a lot of things. We've been having to take what other people tried to cover up and kind of undo that. Um, and the thing that's kind of unique about this, this word restoration is that actually it's multidimensional. It has, it has multiple different facets. What I mean by that is restoration, there's, there's an aspect of kind of remembering the past. Then there's an aspect of assessing what you're looking at, kind of the, the current, present state. And then there's this aspect of looking forward, right? Because you want to take where this house is at, what the, where this thing is at, and you want to return it to what it used to be. So there's this aspect of past, there's this aspect of present, and then there's this aspect of, of future. And the reason that I kind of give that image today is because I think that goes along really well with the text that we're going to be in. Um, if you want to flip to it, it's going to be Psalm 80. So if you brought your Bible, Psalm 80. Um, and we're only going to be really in the second half. So starting in verse 8 is where we're going to be, but uh, still got a little bit more of an intro left. Uh, so this psalm, a little bit different than most of the psalms that we've been going over thus far this summer. So most of the psalms, I think, have been psalms of David. Uh, and, and the difference between uh, the psalms of David and kind of the psalm, this particular psalm of a man called Asaph is, is the language that's used. A lot of David's psalms are more individual in nature, meaning he uses a lot of words like I, me, my, and it's more about his individual relationship with God, his individual struggles, his individual victories. But what this psalm does is it uses words like us. It uses words like we. And so this man named Asaph is kind of speaking on behalf of God's people as a whole. So today, I know that God's going to work however God chooses to work, but I also hope that, and I encourage us all to kind of receive this message and, and hear this text, not from such an individual perspective, but more from like a corporate perspective, more from the perspective of greenhouse, of the, just like Sarah was saying, the church as a whole, not so individual. I know that for me, when I'm listening to messages, often what happens is I'm thinking, how can I apply this to my life? How can, how can this change my life? And it becomes about me, 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 which isn't a horrible thing. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say we shouldn't think about 
how a certain message can impact our lives and transform our lives, but I just, I think that this one needs to be received as it was intended to be received, which was corporately, the body as a whole. Uh, so this man named Asaph, he, he's kind of a music man. He, uh, he's referred to in Second Chronicles as a seer, which is kind of a weird term, but the best way we can describe that is that he was a man who had the gift of prophecy. So this man who had the gift of prophecy, he kind of had these intuitions of where God's people were and where they were supposed to be. Now, he didn't necessarily always know how to get them there, but he had this vision of we're just not really where we're supposed to be. And that's kind of what's coming out in this psalm. And what he's doing is he's doing all those three aspects of restoration that I talked about. He's, he's remembering Israel's past, where they used to be, what their intention was, how God created them, what he intended for them to be. And he's kind of assessing where they're at right now, right? He's saying, here's where we were, here's where we're at now. And he kind of laments over where we are now. And then he starts to kind of, in a hopefully desperate kind of way, starts to look towards the future and starts to look forward. Um, and so there's a phrase that this psalm is kind of built around, and the phrase is, restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. That phrase is used three times in this psalm. Um, so there's, there's some, some words, some verses, and then that phrase, then some more words and some verses, that phrase, and then a lot more words in verses, and then that phrase. And so we're going to be focusing on that third part. Uh, this third part that we're going to be focusing on is verses 8 through 19, and it's disproportionately long in comparison to uh, the other parts of the psalm, in comparison to the first eight verses. Um, and so now we're going to kind of go ahead and jump in, starting in verse 8. There's this image of a vine that's, that's given, and this vine is supposed to represent the nation of Israel. It's supposed to represent God's people, right? And so what we can do living in the time in which we live in, we can kind of equate ourselves to Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, because Israel was God's chosen people of the Old Testament. Fast forward, now we're living in the New Covenant, right? So now we're God's chosen people, so we can kind of equate ourselves to that. Um, obviously, not everything is the exact same about the way the church today operates in comparison to how the nation of Israel operated, but there's, there are some comparisons and there are some similarities. So that's why I said we need to receive this kind of corporately, more as like a us and a we. Um, so if you want to jump in, I'm going to start reading in verse 8. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the rivers. Why then have you broken down its walls, so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire, they have cut it down, may they perish at the, rebu at the rebuke of your face. But let your right hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine, that we may be saved. And so Asaph kind of starts this psalm, like I said, in that remembering the past aspect of that word rest restoration. He says things like, 
uh, this vine was planted, God cleared the ground for it, and it took deep root. He says things like it had, it, it had mighty cedars, and its, its branches uh, sent out to the sea, and it shoots to the rivers. So what he's, what he's describing here is when God originally formed this people, the, these people of Israel, he had a plan for them, and that plan for them involved their thriving, right? It involved their flourishing. And I'm not saying thriving and flourishing in the sense that we often understand that to be in the world. I'm not saying necessarily from a financial standpoint, from a material standpoint, but more so from a spiritual standpoint, right? It's, it's, he created these people to thrive and to thrive on him, to thrive for the right reasons, to thrive in the way that he created them to thrive. And it's saying that they did that, right? It says they took deep root. It says that this thing, this, this vine that was planted, it was beautiful, it was strong, and above all, it was distinct, right? He's using language here that, that shows that this vine, it was distinct. It was different from everything else that was around it. It was stronger. It was taller. It was wider. It, it was connected to the source, right? It said that it shoots, went to the river. It was connected to the source. It was strong, and it was healthy. But then something quickly happens, and, and, and the gears kind of change. You get to verse 12, and then it says, Why then have you broken down its walls? so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit. The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. He goes from talking about how healthy this thing was, talking about how, how beautiful, how distinct this thing was, to now kind of describing this, this slow fading, this decay of this thing that once was healthy, this thing that once was beautiful. He's describing this, this destruction of it. God created his people to be distinct, but what's now happening is that they're, they're losing their distinctness, right? What was distinct is now becoming common. What was thriving is now starting to decay. Now, please hear me say right now, before I go any farther, I, I'm not trying to say that, you know, here at Greenhouse and, and God's church across the world that it's decaying or that it's fading. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that because I recognize that, that God has a sovereign plan for his people and, and that that plan does not involve his people fading away, does not involve them decaying. But I think it is good to recognize that there are seasons in which, you know, things kind of feel stagnant. There's seasons in which things can feel flat. We can feel like growth has halted. We can maybe even feel like growth is kind of, we're digressing, right? We're not, we're not moving forward like we once were. Raise your hand if you ever, raise your hand if you ever look back and you kind of you kind of think, man, I wish I could get back to that time in my life. You ever been there where you wish, where you thought things were just awesome, right? You thought things were as good as they've ever been. You're like, man, if I could only get back to that. So that, that's, that's not the picture here that's being painted. Asaph, when, when he's using this word restore, that word restore, it does mean to come back, to return, but he's not saying return to where you once were. He's saying, you know, we need to return to the Lord. So that's just, just a disclaimer. I'm not trying to say that that we are decaying and that things are going bad, but I am trying to say, I think that we need to have the ability to recognize when things are stagnant. Um, and I know for me, I kind of shared this last time I, I taught, I feel like I've been there. I feel like I've been in this place of just stagnation recently, this place of just feeling kind of stuck, feeling kind of distracted. Um, and I know that I have friends here who've kind of vocalized the same thing, and maybe even as a body, maybe there's been that sense um, from what I've seen. Uh, but like I said, just, just, a, just the disclaimer. Um, 
And I think what's most important in the midst of that is it's, it's, it's extremely important to be able to, to look back to remember what the intention was, what God's original vision, what God's original plan for us was in those times. His plan for us was not to be a people who just kind of coasted by. His plan was not to be a people who just went through the motions. Our, his plan for us was, was to be a people who thrived, was to be a people who who were strong and who grew and who, who reached out, who touched and gave life to everything that they, the, everything that they came in contact with. And I don't know about you, but I know for me, that's just, that's just not where I've been. That's just not the, the season that we've been in, but I want to get back there, and, and I want to have this kind of desperate hopefulness for the future that we see Asaph has, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that, but I want to have that, and I want us to have that. I don't want to be content with with where I'm at. I want to always be, be looking forward. Um, so, you know, there, there's, there's this kind of broken language that's used here, right? He's saying, why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? What he's kind of doing, he's, he, it's almost like he's blaming God for that, right? He's saying, why have you done this? And earlier in the psalm, we didn't read these verses, but he says, you have fed us with the bread of tears. He says things like, you have made us an object of contention among our neighbors. He, it's almost like he's, he's blaming God for the current state that Israel finds themselves in. But, but I don't think that's right. I don't think that's really the case. Um, just to give a little bit of background, Psalm 80 was written, um, at least what most people believe, was written during the Babylonian captivity. And so if you know anything about the Babylonian captivity, um, the way that it started was actually kind of due to Israel's neglect uh, of their Sabbath, right? If you look to um, 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 19 to 21, I'll read it here. It says, and they burned the house of God, talking about the Babylonians, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. And burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all, its, all of its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who escaped the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths all the days that it lay desolate. It kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. His captivity was not due to God causing these, these horrible things to happen to Israel, but was more so a natural consequence of the decisions that they had made, right? More so a natural consequence of the things that Israel began to settle for, of the things that Israel uh, began to do. So Israel, obviously, you know, if, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that God put a Sabbath in place. And it's, he put a Sabbath in place because he knew that we are people that need rest. He created us to need rest. And so their neglect of that Sabbath, really what that was is it was them saying, God, we think we know a better way. We think we know a different way other than the way that you created us, other than your intentions, right? And so, so that's kind of what led them down this path of God basically giving them over to the Babylonians. And when I say giving them over, that's, I'm not saying that God caused that to happen. I'm, God, I'm saying that God kind of just let what their, what their decisions, let the decisions that they were making kind of let the natural result uh, occur there. And, and they find themselves in this state because they, they had a disregard for the things of God and in essence had a disregard for God himself. Now, I, I definitely don't think that's the case for us here, but I think that the, the point in that is that we need to be people who are sensitive to the things of God. We need to be people who, who, who recognize that we're supposed to be distinct. We're not supposed to be common. There's supposed to be a sacredness about who we are, about this place, about 
the time that we share together. And, and most of all, what makes us distinct is the God that we serve. It's not this building. It's not the people who teach. It's not the music. It's honestly, it's not even our kindness. It's not even our love that makes us distinct, but it's the God that fuels all, fuels all that. Yes, people, we are supposed to be recognized by our love, but it's the God behind it all that fuels that. And that's what Israel wasn't content with. They weren't content with being known and being distinct because of the God that they served, they wanted to be distinct for these other reasons. If you look back, starting from the very beginning with Adam and Eve, they, they didn't want to be distinct because they were the created. They wanted to be equal to the creator, right? They took from the tree because they wanted to be equal with God. They weren't okay with being distinct solely because they were created and loved by God. They, they needed something more, right? They felt like they felt like there was something more. Fast forward a little bit, and then you think about the Tower of Babel, right? That's a perfect example. Tower of Babel, it says that they wanted to make a name for themselves. They weren't content with being distinct because of the God that they served. They wanted to be distinct for their own reasons. The book of Judges, all throughout the book of Judges, a very dark time in Israel's history, right? Israel wanted a king. They weren't content with God being their king. They weren't content with God being what made them distinct. They wanted something else. Fast forward a little bit more, you come to a guy named Solomon, right? Solomon, at first, he was pretty content with just with serving God and God being what made him distinct. But then he said, no, I think I want riches. I think I want wisdom. I think I want women. I think I want projects. I think I want real estate. He, he wasn't content with God being what made him distinct. I think we need to ask ourselves, are we, as the people of God, are we content with God actually being the one that makes us distinct? Not our actions, not our not our rituals, not our Bible reading, not our praying, but are we content with God actually being the one that makes us distinct? Because I think it's very possible, and, 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 I, and I do think that in some places there are people who are gathering this morning, there are, there are groups of people who are gathering this morning saying that it's in the name of Jesus, yet the Spirit of God is not in that place, right? It is a scary thing. I forget who said this, but I was looking at a quote the other day that I think it was like C.S. Lewis, maybe it sounds like something he would say, but basically it said, I think that it would take the current Christian, he was talking about in his time, the, the current church, it would take them three months to recognize that the Spirit of God had left them, if the Spirit of God left them. Now, I know that God doesn't leave us when he brings us into the fold, he doesn't leave us, but his point was, we often rely so much on our own abilities, on our own on, on, on our own characteristics, on our own attributes, that if God wasn't there, really, nobody would know too much of a difference. Nobody would be able to tell that anything was different. And, and I think that's, that's where Israel is right now. So fast forward to the New Testament. You have a similar situation with the Pharisees, right? They weren't content with God being what made them distinct, but they wanted to be distinct because of their strict adherence to the law, right? And in every single one of these cases, what ended up happening was these people were nearly brought to ruin, right? Their, their lack of dependency on God, their refusal to allow God to be what made them a distinct people nearly caused their ruin. And it interrupted the intimacy that they once had with God. It interrupted that vision that God had for them. God has a, a much more beautiful vision than I think sometimes we, we realize. He has a much more beautiful vision for us than I think sometimes we I think sometimes we, we live up to. We just, we are people who so often settle. And this was the curse of the people of Israel is that they so often settled for something that was less than what God had planned. 
so often settle for something less than, I don't want to say their potential, but less than what God wanted to bring them to. Raise your hand right now if you wish, if, if you are not the person that you want to be. If you think that you could be a better person, right? That's every single one of us. We're always striving. We're always in a place where we're not where we quite want to be, but we're getting there, right? That was Israel's struggle. It was they weren't happy with where they wanted to be, but they didn't realize that it was God that, that they needed, right? They, they thought, oh, well, we're not where we want to be. We need a king, just like I was talking about with the book of Judges. We're not where we want to be. We need to build this tower. That way we can make a name for ourselves, right? And it just doesn't work that way. We have to be people who rely completely and wholly on God to make us distinct and to make us that people that has a real, genuine impact on the world. Or else... There's going to be a lot of spinning our wheels, a lot of futility, a lot of time spent for really, for really nothing. Um, so, sorry, I'm kind of getting, off, getting us off on a, a sidetrack there. But um, up until this point in the, in the psalm, up until verse 13, Asaph has been spending most of his time looking back to the past, and he's been spending the last couple of verses kind of lamenting over their current state, right? He's been talking about, why have you torn down our walls? Why are we in this place? But now he kind of changes gears a little bit, and he starts to look forward towards the future. He says, turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. What he's kind of doing, and it sounds, it sounds bad when you say it, but he's kind of telling God what God said, right? Um, Bob, I think, I think it was David Platt who actually, we, we were uh, listening to David Platt's Secret Church a couple months ago at this point, and one of the things that he said was, he said God loves when his people tell him what he said, when they remind him of his promises, because it's not a, a testing of God. It's not like, God, you said this. Are you going to do it or not? That's not the kind of the spirit in which this is being said. But it's more of a, God, we know you said this and we know you're faithful, but we're not seeing it right now. Right now, we're in this place of decay. We're in this place of maybe stagnation. We're in this place of, uh, in their case, kind of destruction. But you've said this, and we know that you're faithful to that. They're, they're telling God what God has said. Brian, I think you mentioned the other week, like preaching to yourself, how important it is to preach to ourselves. I also think it's extremely important to, to tell God what God said. And I think he loves that because he is a God who's faithful to what he said. And he will continue to provide. He will continue to carry out his plan, even if there's roadblocks, even if there's deviations, right? And then he says this weird phrase that, honestly, I kind of wrestled over for a long time because I wasn't sure I would go to commentaries, I would look up what it's trying to refer to. That phrase that says... Uh, the son whom you have made strong for yourself. And then a couple verses later, it's said again. It says, but, your, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. It's like, what's he trying to say? I think at first it's, I'm like, is that Jesus that he's talking about? Is that? But then I would read stuff and, you know, it would say, no, it's not talking about Jesus. But I would say the conclusion that I came to is that that is referring to, I believe that is referring to, to the Messiah, to the chosen one of Israel. And so he's at this place where he's saying, God, do you remember what you promised? And then he says, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. And this is that moment in time where he's really starting to look forward, where he's, he's starting to have this kind of hopeful desperation for a better future for Israel, right? And I think that that's really what all of us 
desire. We desire a, a better future, a, a, to be in a different place than where we are now. We just had pretty much everybody in the room raise their hand and say, yeah, I'm not quite where I really want to be. I want to be somewhere else. I want to be better. I want to be closer to God. And it's the same case here. It's, it's Asaph saying, God, we're not where we need to be. We're not living like the people you've called us to, to be, but we want to be there. And we need this chosen one. We need this Messiah that you said you're going to send to get us there, right? And so he says it again, like I just read. He says, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Like I said, there is some debate, but I believe that that's talking about Jesus. That's talking about the chosen one of Israel. But he, he kind of phrases the verse right after it in a way that almost makes it sound like he's trying to strike a deal with God. He says, uh, let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man, whom you have made strong for yourself. Verse 18, then we shall not turn back from you. And so at first you read that and you're kind of like, well, it sounds like he's trying to strike a deal with God. It kind of sounds like he's saying, God, if you do this, then we'll do this. If you give us this, then we'll do this. But I don't think that's really what he's trying to say. I think what he's trying to say is it's more of a cause and effect statement, if that makes sense. It's more of a, God, if your hand, if your sovereign hand doesn't remain on your chosen one, not only will we not be able to, to not, like, we will not have the ability to keep ourselves from turning from you. Because the entire history of the nation of Israel is them coming to God, turning from God, coming back to God, turning from God, coming back to God, turning from God. And it's just this cycle, and it's, it, it's almost like there's this frustration here where Asaph's like, God, if you don't bring this, this son, this man, if you don't bring this to pass, if you don't bring this redeemer to the nation of Israel, we're not going to be able to keep ourselves from turning from you. And so what he's kind of doing is he's, he's insinuating the sinful nature of Israel, right? He's, 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 he's past the, you know, he's, he's past the actions. He's past all of those things, and he's starting to talk about Israel's heart. He's trying to say that Israel is a sinful nation at heart, and if a Redeemer doesn't come, they will meet their absolute destruction. They will meet their absolute ruin, and that's even more reinforced in verse 18. After it says, then we shall not turn back from you, it says, give us life, and we will call upon your name. Now, I think if you know me, I'm somebody that's all about like words having deeper meaning and this is the this is the literal translation of this and all that stuff. And I tried to find that with this word life. Sometimes I try to do that. I'm like, "Oh, what does this really mean? What does the real translation read?" But this word life that's used here, it's not like the kind of life like true life or abundant life. That's not what it means. The kind of word that's used here for life is like existence kind of life. Like like continuous life, continuous existence. So what in essence Asaph is coming to God and saying is on behalf of God's people is, God, if you, like we need you to be the one that gives us life. We need you. We, our existence depends on you. Us calling upon your name depends on you continuing to uphold our existence, right? It's a nation recognizing that we really can't do anything apart from you being at the center of it. We really have no impact. We have no distinction if it's not you that's withholding our existence. And I, I just feel like that's, that's not always how we are. I'm not even just saying here, but that's not always how we are as people. That's definitely not how we are as a nation when it comes to the church here in America and probably not even across the world. We, we don't have that kind of dependency. 
I think in a lot of, a lot of the times, and, and I will admit, in my very most sinful times, I can sometimes think, yeah, I can go up there and do that. Even if God, even if God doesn't help me, I could, I could talk through it. We could, we could get people to come to Jesus, even if God's not a part of it. Like, I'm not saying that I ruminate on those thoughts. I'm not saying that I actually believe those, but there's a part of me that can think, we, we could do this thing without God. We could keep this thing going. But here we see these people, this man speaking on behalf of God's people that says, we can't. We have no distinction. We have no ability to make a change if he's not the one who's fueling it. And this is where that aspect of repentance starts to come in, right? It's, it's we have tried to do this thing without you, Lord. We have tried to, to be a people and to make ourselves distinct aside from you. We have tried to, to pursue our own things, and it just hasn't worked. It's left us empty. It's left us stagnant. It's left us decaying. And that's what, that's what we're seeing. Now, this psalm ends with the phrase that's used two other times. It says, Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. One of the interesting things that, that I saw here was that it says in this last verse, O Lord God of hosts, restore us, O Lord God of hosts. I know we didn't read these verses, but if you would have started at the beginning, the very first time this was said, it said, restore us, O God. And then the second time that it was said, it said, restore us, O God of hosts. And now this third time, it's restore us, O Lord God of hosts. And that might not seem that significant, but when you, when you look at it, there's a sense of desperation and of urgency as the psalm goes on. It's, it's that God's people are becoming more desperate. The more that they're remembering their past, the more that they're seeing where they currently are, and the more that they're looking towards the future, there's a desperation. I think desperation is something that God's people, I know me, I'm raising my hand, desperation is something that we lack. I, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago that I think that, you know, we don't worship something that we think we don't need. You aren't desperate for something that you think you don't need. You aren't desperate for something you think you could do without. So the question today is, like, are we a people who really are desperate for God? Or are we a people who are kind of like, yeah, I'm glad God's here, but life would probably be okay if he wasn't. Are we actually desperate? Because there will be no movement. There will be no impact. There will be no little to no. I shouldn't say no. There will be little impact that we have on this city, on this world, on this state, on, on our neighbor, if we aren't desperate for God to move, if we aren't desperate for God to restore us, if we can't recognize that we need to be restored, that we're not where we're supposed to be, that there was this vision that God had, and we're not living out that vision. You know, if, if, if I were to ask, you know, how would you describe not only your personal life, but maybe Greenhouse as a whole or your house church, would you say that it was like a a vine that took deep root, that had mighty cedars, that its shoots shot to the river, that it was thriving, that it was growing, that it was healthy, that it gave life to everything it touched. Would we describe ourselves as that? And once again, I'm not up here throwing condemnation towards anybody because I've already said I'm, I'm in the same boat. I'm not, I wouldn't describe myself as that. But that's what makes God's people distinct is that they have a dependency and a desperation for him. And when we lose that, 
we lose our impact and we lose what makes us distinct and we settle for what's common. We settle for what's average, what's ordinary. And God did not create us to be average, to be ordinary, and not create us to, to be, you know, just your everyday average Joe. He created us to have a real and a genuine impact on the people that we interact with. Are we doing that? And I'm going to end with this. That word restore, here I go again, the word, this really means this and this really means that, but that word restore, um, it does mean to come back to, to return to. And as I mentioned earlier, we, we so often can think we need to get back to a certain place we used to be in our life, get back to a certain season, get back to certain behaviors that we used to, that we used to uh, frequently show when we were doing our best. But that's not, what this, that's not what this is saying. It's not saying return to reading your Bible every day, although that's not a bad thing. It's not saying return to praying, return to fasting, return to being in community. That's not at the heart of it. That's not what it's saying. It's saying return to God himself. It says, Asaph says, let your face shine that we may be saved all throughout Scripture. When you hear that phrase, your, God's face shining, what that means is, what that always insinuates is that someone had a close encounter with God. Think about Moses. When he goes up on the mountain, what does it say? It says that he came down and his face was shining, right? He had just had this close, intimate encounter with God. And then in the book of Numbers, there's this benediction, and it says, God, let your face shine upon us and be gracious unto us, right? It's God's blessing on a group of people. It's God's favor. It involves intimacy. And here in this case, Asaph is saying, let your face shine that we may be saved. God, we need to have a real, genuine encounter with you, a close, intimate encounter with you if we want to be restored. The heart of the issue is whether or not we recognize that we need to be restored. That even if we have said yes to Jesus, that even if we have said yes to his promise, even if we are in the fold, we still need to be restored because guess what? Just like the nation of Israel, we stray. We become stagnant. We become flat. We lose our impact. We lose our distinction. And we need God to restore us. And we need that desperation. Let's be a people who are desperate. Let's be a people who recognize that. You pray with me. Lord, I, I ask you, I admit, first of all, before I ask you anything, I admit, Lord, that there are so many other people who I know that could, that could come up here and could teach and could communicate far more effectively than I could and in a way that could probably honor you more than I have and more than I do. Lord, I pray that through what we have read here today, through what we've seen, that you would make us a people who are desperate, Lord, that we wouldn't be a people who settle, that we would be a people who reflect, who remember what your vision is for us, who remember what you said you wanted to do with us, who see where we're at in our current state and who look forward with hopeful desperation. Lord, make us people who are desperate. Make us people who know that we will have no impact and that we will not taste what true life is until we have a genuine encounter with you, until your face shines on us. So Lord, I do ask you, Lord, restore us. Restore us and let your face shine 
so that we may be saved, so that we may not only be saved, but Lord, so that the people around us may be saved, so that the people around us would come to know you, would come to, to know the plan that you have for their life. Lord, make us desperate. In Jesus' name, amen.